1: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of and audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at and
0: This is your moment. Your time to shine. Your comeback.
4: This is Our American Stories, and every once in a while we just tell great stories about ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things. A mass shooting took place on November 7, 2018 in Thousand Oaks, California at the Borderline Bar & Grill, a country western bar frequented by college students. Thirteen people were killed. Tyler Spady was one of the roughly 250 patrons there on that fateful night here he is to share his story of survival and hope the week
5: before the shooting um it just gives kind of a story to what borderline was um was a halloween night where everyone goes and uh, dresses up and you have costume contests and uh that night i went as the uh little boy and up in the full um boy scout uniform that i borrowed from my neighbor and my buddy uh, jesse went as donald trump and the whole uh the whole place was full of people in costumes and my dad was in attendance and my sister was in attendance and everyone was uh hanging out playing uh playing pool uh creating friendships line dancing and having uh, a good time like you usually do at this place and it it wasn't just a, a bar many people when you think about it in the news, just think about it like that. But it was an 18-plus place where people would go to socialize in the college years. It was a really uh, amazing place where uh, I would have been going since I was 18 years old, so five years prior to this happening, and knew just about every every person who regularly went there, and especially my friend group of about 20 people that uh, would go regularly and play pool and uh do the things that college students do. <laughs> but um saying that this even happened in this place, you know, Ventura County is one of the safest counties in the country, according to the FBI. And my dad knowing these things, this was a safe place where he could trust his daughter and his son to go when we were eighteen and it was clean, safe, fun where you're never gonna get in a bad situation. And I mean, he had prepared us for something like this. We all had bulletproof plates that he had bought us from a place called Defender Body Armor in Camarillo. So, going into that night, it was like any other night. We, me and my buddy John was uh, moving to Texas to become a firefighter. So, he had come over to the house and we were going to go out and see him off. And my sister who was in Montana a few days prior on her way home from the airport was in a uh, car accident. So she wasn't able to attend, but it was an off night because the previous week was Halloween. So people were kind of burnt out from it and they didn't want to go. So we weren't able to get any, any uh, of the people that usually come. I I'm thankful to God every day that Ashley wasn't able to come because I don't know what the outcome would have been having my sister there if I would have made it or if she would have. So I'm very thankful that that th- that happened and it kind of gives perspective on this whole thing that every single thing in your life happens for a reason and uh, it's a good life outcome that I've taken from it. So we got there and saw my friends that it, that i have grown up with my whole life in a, uh, in a, out front so we kind of joined groups and went in together a group of about 15 people and started the night and it was a good night like any other we got there about 10:15 and started hanging out with everyone and taking pictures and dancing line dancing and socializing and creating friendships and uh then about 11:20 my ex-girlfriend who I hadn't talked to in a couple months. Asked me if I wanted to to swing dance, so I went out and did a couple swing dances and went to the went to the side and just kind of looked across the, the dance floor and it was a, a feeling like this was the best life could get for a for a young kid. And then I texted my friends and they said that they were near the bar, so I took a few steps toward the bar and then I heard the first shots and I immediately knew what it was I knew it was a gun but it was like you're in a gun range without a any ear protection on with uh, it reverberating through the room and I thought it may have been a dispute between two people and I turned to my left and there was a guy all in black and he had just uh, shot someone in the front and then started shooting toward the bar uh, where my friends were. And I didn't really feel any emotions. I just was in shock that this was happening and it wasn't, you could tell it wasn't a planned thing where he was coming in to kill someone. He was coming in to kill as many people as he could. Then he turned the, the gun toward the area I was in and started shooting and I immediately dropped to the floor and went toward the wall um, near the dance floor that is out of vision of the front upper level and placed my back against that and then I remember not feeling safe there because if he went down you could see me so I jumped over the wall onto a few tables and went under the tables onto, push some chairs out of the way some bar stools and then there was a uh, a pause it felt like it felt like I was in there for 20 minutes and in actuality I was probably in there for t- two minutes or, or so and he when there was this pause someone said run and it's it was like immediately every single person in the bar who didn't know what to do uh, based on those words started moving so I got up and started moving toward the direction everyone was running in
4: And you've been listening to Tyler Spadey tell the story of what happened in a country in Western Bar, not far from his home, in Thousand Oaks, California, and at the Borderline Bar and Grill. And we all saw the story in the news, and we've seen stories in the news like this before. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Tyler Spadey and what happened on that night and beyond. This is Our American Story. And we return to our American stories and Tyler Spadey's story. We're talking about the mass shooting that occurred in Thousand Oaks, California, at the borderline bar and grill where 13 people were killed in an instant, practically. And Tyler was there. There was a pause in gunfire, so someone in the borderline bar and grill yelled, run. As Tyler recalled, quote, with those words, everyone started moving. And that included Tyler himself. Here again is Tyler Spader.
5: Everyone was running toward the kitchen. I didn't know whether he was behind me or not, so I looked over my shoulder. And when I turned around, someone had put down the waiter um, door, and I hit my face into that and fell under it and started crawling. And everyone was shoving and pushing, trying to get through the small door. Uh, trampling over each other and uh, people are basically swimming over over each other and it was a really claustrophobic moment of terror and you could hear the bullets whizzing over and hitting the walls as we were moving out and I got up and started running uh, running through the kitchen in a haze I got to the back of the bar where there's a loading dock and jumped off that and fell over onto the ground and then recovered from that. And there was a group of about 40 of the people that were with me running to the hill nearby. And I started running up to that, but I didn't feel safe in that moment. So I told uh, everyone on the hill to run to the neighborhood nearby. And a girl came with me and I helped her over the fence. And we went to every door in the neighborhood nearby and started knocking on the doors, trying to get into houses eventually we were able to get inside and when you when I finally did get inside it was no longer the fight or flight where I was just trying to live I, f- I was able to feel safe so I just laid against the wall and started uh, crying and received calls and called my my family to tell them that I was okay and it was it's interesting looking back I can feel how I felt that night I I don't dwell on it that that often or think about it because I don't think it's beneficial for me to do so. And I've kind of moved past it, but I can definitely feel those uh, emotions. And the family, I'll be forever grateful for um, them letting me into that home because they were really kind to me and embraced me and really helped me. Shortly after this, my friend John called me and said he was all right and they had jumped out the window and he had a similar situation of swimming over people and so I got in the car with his mom came and picked me up and I'd known this guy since middle school and I was just glad that that he was okay and we drove home and it was a quiet but really sad ride home where you're just trying to take in what you just witnessed when I did finally get home I can remember the the best feeling that I've ever had in my life was hugging my mom and my sisters and falling to my knees upstairs and just letting every single emotion I had out and for about 10 minutes laying on the ground. After this, we turned on the news and it further became real. We were all in shock. Everyone in the room, my neighbors of 15 years came came over to the house and embraced me and they were also regulars at this place when I got home my mom said that I had blood splattered on my on my face but I didn't have any cuts so I went and cried while I washed myself off and went back to the room to see everyone and I can't can't express the feelings that I had it was just other than disbelief and terror but a terror in a sense that you can't get a thought together there is nothing but the absence of feeling one of my friends actually that night who had we had seen there was not allowed in because of some reasons and so him and his girlfriend had gone home and that's just another thing another moment of God I think Uh, interjecting into into this and everything happens for a reason so those people were spared uh, the trauma as well and uh, potentially more than that In the days following you slowly get information about friends and people you know who have been um, were killed in this event and Uh, Me and my sister, my sister was uh, best friends with um, one of the people, uh, one of their sisters that had uh, had passed. And when we got that news, um, uh, we just both weeped in her room. That was a terrible moment for for me and her. But this family that formed out of that and was there before uh, will always have a special place in my heart and our Considered family to me. I will never Lose the connections that I've made that night from all these these individuals Few a few days later after the event um, when we were Doing different events with everyone and coming together to feel this as a group Donald Trump flew into the town and visited with a few of the families who had lost certain individuals and showed nothing but love and admiration for everyone involved. That was a really incredible uh, experience to meet a president and for him to do that for us. One of the things that that I take away from this, I mean there's a a verse, there's no greater love than to give your life for a friend and many individuals that night uh, had done that, that act. And forever, I'll be grateful to those people. Uh, after this all happened, um, it was just months of recovering from the trauma, and I tried to put myself in it as much as possible to sit on it now and l- let it go in my past later. So I tried to get, uh, be, be around people around me that were also involved in it and because I'd be, I was actually going to Montana so I set this date. It was uh, January 8th that I was going to Montana, Montana and this happened on, on November 7th. The day I was going to leave to go to Montana, I went to the, to the bar to see, uh, see it one last time and um, say goodbye and leave it in the past so I got on the plane and went to Montana and I lived in Montana where I was born and got to move past that moment and change my scenery then I came back for the one year anniversary and felt it again with the individuals that were with me with all the people there I was able to heal more, but also see the, see the good in every moment. The, f- the family that is borderline that had come together was, was there to comfort everyone who was still hurting and to move past it as a maybe more than borderline a, a Thousand Oaks family, a Ventura County family, all these people that are connected in this clo- close-knit uh, community.
4: And what a voice. You've been listening to Tyler Spadey tell the story of not merely a mass shooting episode that took the lives of 13 young people, but changed the town he lived in. But not just for the worse. In many ways, as he put it, for the better. Evil can come knocking, and it will. But how a town copes with that, how it comes together and rises above it, it takes the measure of the town. It can do the same thing it can do to a marriage. Someone loses a kid and that marriage isn't strong. Well, it has two ways to go. It gets stronger or it breaks apart. And how we deal with tragedy and trauma. We talk a lot about these things here on the show. The story of Tyler Spadey, indeed, the story of a town, Thousand Oaks. A beautiful story in the end, a sad one too. Tyler Spadey's here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with our American stories. And we love telling father son stories here on our show. The good and the bad, by the way. Today we have Reverend Justin McGuire sharing his story. And today this one comes from right here in Oxford, Mississippi. Justin lives here with his wife, Missy, and five kids. Here's his story. I was born in Columbia, South Carolina,
2: 40 years ago now. Um, And My parents divorced when I was 23 months old, so I don't have any childhood memories of my dad at all. Um, From my earliest memories, it was just me and my mom. Dad was never in the picture. What I later learned was that my dad had a history of alcohol abuse, uh, substance abuse, that he um, had had affairs, also that he was... uh, emotionally and verbally and physically abusive as well as I got a little older many of those allegations were substantiated by um, other adults and our family other people who had known him and again that was that was just sort of what I was told about him but again I had no memory of him whatsoever I remember once uh, playing at my grandparents house and there was a a photo album that I was just flipping through and there were a lot of you know Photos from my childhood and even of my my mom's childhood and have an uncle, her brother, um, you know, their childhood and things like that. And I came across some pictures of a baby laying on its back being played with by a man. And I thought that I recognized myself as the baby. Uh, I did not recognize the man. And so I had to ask my grandmother, Grandma, is is this my dad? And she said, Yeah, that's your dad. And so I can't remember specifically how old I was at that point, but certainly in, you know, single digits. But, you know, finally uh, at least there having a, a face to put with my dad was, uh, I wouldn't say helpful, but it, you know, I guess satisfied some small level of curiosity. And I would still sometimes upon, you know, subsequent visits to my grandparents' house, go seek out that photo album specifically just to flip through and kind of look back and see him. So, um my grandparents played a really integral role in my upbringing. My mom's dad, uh, so my my biological grandfather, um, was the father figure in my life growing up. They certainly didn't have you know like visitation in in any legal sense, but it seemed like in some sense they did because I spent so many weekends at their house growing up. So he was the guy with whom you know I'd play catch in the backyard and uh, who would do with me all of the things that you know, a dad would typically have done. But again, growing up, it was just me and my mom. And so things, you know, progressed that way um, throughout my childhood on into college. And then after graduating college and getting married, I learned from my grandmother that unbeknownst to me, contact had actually been maintained between my dad's sister and um, and my grandmother, like she would check in from time to time, you know, just to kind of see how I was doing, if I was, you know, growing and developing normally and things like that. And that came as a complete shock to me. My, my assumption for my entire life had been that there was there was no contact whatsoever, not necessarily due to any animosity or anything like that, but just because, you know, that was the way that things had gone. So that was very surprising to learn. Um, what was more surprising was Maybe six weeks after learning that, I got a call from my grandmother saying that she had again been in contact with my dad's sister and that my dad had been diagnosed with lung cancer and that he had only been given a few weeks to live and that he had asked to see me. And uh, that was something of a shock. Um, The good news was that uh, I had become a Christian maybe three years prior to that. And so my response to that news at that point as as a Christian believer was decidedly different than it would have been otherwise. You know, most of my childhood and upbringing, I harbored a great deal of resentment toward my dad and would in probably, you know, predictable teenage bravado kind of ways would say things, man, if I ever see him, you know, I'll knock him out. And, you know, I can't, I just kind of hated him. I, I looked around and I... I saw what most of my friends had in their dads, you know, at a very early age. Realized that I did not have that, and just lamented the loss of that presence in my life. But having come to faith in Christ, um, I was grateful that I was going to have the opportunity. It seemed to to meet him and interact with him. And so, if memory serves, we got that phone call on a Tuesday. Uh, we made plans. To go down the following Sunday, he was in a hospital in Savannah, Georgia. We were living in Columbia, South Carolina, at the time, and so Savannah is probably four or five hours south of where we were. Um, we went and purchased a Bible. We had his name inscribed on it. Uh, we gathered some CDs of some sermons that had been kind of meaningful to us, uh, in the hopes that you know, if he was not a believer, that he would read the Bible, maybe listen to some sermons, uh, perhaps come to faith in Jesus, and um, and just prayed a lot uh, from that Tuesday until the Sunday when we departed to go down there. So we drove down there. We got to the hospital. Um, one somewhat disconcerting thing to learn upon our arrival there <laughs> was that he had actually not asked to see me. Um, that was a a ploy really on his sister's part, very well-meaning on her part. Um, she did not want him to die without having at least seen or met me and and perhaps I suppose for him to have some kind of closure or some, you know, some way to address, you know, what he had done to me. I, I don't know if she wanted him to, you know, seek forgiveness or, you know, really what her exact motivation was. But we had driven all that way down there. We were there and it was kind of, well, I'm, we're going to see him anyway. Um, and so I... Got on the elevator, you know, was went with her. Um, got shown to my father's hospital room, and he was uh, laying in his hospital bed, and um, met him for the first time in my memory. You know, I had never um, met or heard his voice or interacted with him. There had never been any letters exchanged, no phone calls. There was n- zero contact. Uh, over the years, and so um, I was 23. This would have been the summer of 2004, um, and so you know I remember uh, sitting on. Uh, he sat up in his bed and was able to sit on the edge of his bed. I remember sitting beside him. We embraced. We hugged. Um, wept a lot. Then, for sure, it's still um, obviously somewhat emotional to think through now, but it was unique to get to hug the man from whom you should have been getting hugs for 23 years and um, I don't remember a ton of the details of the conversation I I do remember um, very clearly being able to express to him that I forgave him um, for his absence Uh, and he asked me if if I would like to go on a walk with him, it's like, would you like to go on a walk? And I, you know, I didn't even know that that was possible given the machines to which he was attached and everything. I said, yeah, absolutely. And even in, even in the moment, it it somewhat struck me uh, how many, um, what I would have given to have been able to just go
4: on walks with my dad um, growing up. And you've been listening to Reverend Justin McGuire. He lives here in our hometown of Oxford, Mississippi. That's where we broadcast, about an hour south of Memphis. And when we come back, we'll continue the story of Justin McGuire, his father-son's story, here on Our American Stories.
3: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising
2: until you start listening.
1: When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elaje Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise.
4: And we're back with Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Reverend Justin McGuire share his father-son's story. He had never met his dad, by the way, until one day at the age of 23 he got that call that his dad was sick and he went to go see him in the hospital. When he got there, Justin's dad asked him to go on a walk with him. Let's get back to the story. They detached him from you know his machines. He had to you know
2: had to wheel the little IV thing with him uh, outside. But I uh, got on the elevator, went downstairs, went outside. It was this glorious, I mean, it couldn't have been a more picturesque, day in Savannah, Georgia, um, you know, the Spanish moss and the trees and azaleas. It was just glorious. And so we went and sat at one of those concrete picnic tables and, you know, engaged um, in some small talk. But given what I knew about his condition and the very limited time uh, that he had, I you know, intentionally directed the conversation toward more, you know, eternal matters. And you know, I just asked him if he was if he was certain of where he was going to go, you know, when his life did indeed come to an end. And um, sadly, from from my perspective uh, and from a Christian perspective, he had embraced some beliefs that had been communicated to him, very well-meaning but biblically misguided. And so, thankfully, I was able to talk through some of that with him. Um, He asked some questions, and we were able to have a really – Kind of clarifying uh, conversation about those things. At the conclusion of which, um, he prayed to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. And so, <laughs> that, I mean, as if things couldn't have gotten more surreal, there there was that. And so, he gave every indication that he he understood the gospel, um, that he believed it, and that he believed it for himself. And um, you know, shortly thereafter, it was clear that he was. Physically weakening, you know, a little bit, and so we we went back and um, visited for a little while longer. At that point, with Missy, she came into the room, and um, his sister, um, my mom, actually came in, which was really interesting as well. You know, they uh, they embraced. Um, neither one of them expressing any, you know, ill will toward the other or anything like that. So that was that was kind of neat to see, also. And uh, and we ended up leaving. We went to lunch with. His sister, his brother, uh, who was married, uh, his sister single, something that I learned that I think explained a good bit to me about why my dad ended up being the way that he was, was that he was the baby of their family. If I remember correctly, I think those were the only three siblings. He had the older brother and sister. He was the baby. When he was two, their dad died, Um, and I can't remember the cause, but obviously unexpected in their recollection from the get-go, he was uh, the the black sheep slash the rebel, you know, of the family. Um, You know, engaged in all kinds of illicit behavior that they never approved of. And and so there was this really interesting contrast between the way that he had lived his life and the way that they had lived theirs. Um, And that, upon reflection, helping me just to appreciate even more deeply um, God's grace in my life uh, to keep me from going down similar paths. Um, So we wrapped that up. I I would say we probably spent uh, five or six hours in Savannah. We came back and had uh, planned to go back down the following Sunday for a similar sort of visit. And in the meantime, had several phone conversations with my dad during the week. He, uh, He had begun reading his Bible. He had listened to those sermons. You know, every indication that I got from the conversations that we had was that he was engaged uh, spiritually. Um, And uh, sadly, but in in God's providence on that Sunday morning, as we were still in bed, just getting ready to get up and get going for the day, his sister called to tell us that he had passed away during the night. Um, So within a few weeks, they had his, his funeral. I got to speak uh, at his graveside uh, very briefly. Um, That's where um, things left off and it's it's been interesting to continue to reflect on um in the years since then just the the way that I spent all of my childhood and my early adulthood you know not necessarily wondering why I didn't have a dad but there are there being no no good reason you know for that as far as I was concerned and everything that that I missed out on um from a dad's presence in my life, but then to reflect on the, the gospel hope that I now have—that despite not having him in this life, I'll have an eternity with him—and uh, that's 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 a remarkable and very um, happy thought. So, becoming a father has definitely at different points forced reflection on my dad's absence in my life in a number of ways. Um, there, there have been different points in my children's lives when they've reached the age that I was when my dad left. And at those points, I, I've just been struck with the, a sense of incredulity that you could leave at that point. Because while i I was still young enough that I had no conscious memory of him. A child at that age is totally engaged uh, with his or her dad, Um, able to play, able to interact, even to some degree verbally. Um, And and it just struck me, how how could you do that? How could you leave uh, at that point? Um, On not countless but numerous occasions, um, the thought, the thought has crossed my mind very consciously, you know, when a kid says, Hey, dad, you know, can you, can you go in the yard and play football with us? And it, it's like, of course I can, you know, I absolutely, I will. Um, e- even within the last week that's happened on more than one occasion when again, the thought has just come back, man, what I would not have given or what I would have given uh, just to have a dad to throw a ball with something that simple um, and that requires frankly so little uh, but but the the delight that that brings uh, to kids and, and to, to my kids um yeah it, it's definitely given me motivation I would say on one hand but but also just gratitude for the opportunity to be present in their lives and, and I don't remember who said it or where we heard it but Missy and I Uh, both clearly remember hearing um, someone say something along the lines of, you know, kids don't grow up in Christian homes and leave the faith uh, because of how, you know, wrongly their parents did things. But the kids who, and, and again, I'm not citing statistics or anything like this, but, you know, Kids who end up growing up in the church and, and end up leaving the faith are those who had parents who tried to act like they never did anything wrong. You know, it's not that they didn't do things wrong; it's that they did things wrong but refused to ever own it and wouldn't apologize and acknowledge. And so, there's this this facade or, or a veneer of self righteousness that gets communicated. Like I'm getting everything right, and if you would just kind of get on board with my program, then everything would go swimmingly, um, as opposed to parents who simply in in acknowledging sin to their kids or just telling their kids what their kids already know. They know you screwed up. They know that you shouldn't have said that. They know that you should not have lost your temper that way. They know that you shouldn't have done whatever it is that you've done. And it actually presents a meaningful and really redemptive opportunity to communicate to your children, listen, um, yes, for this stage of your life, God has put me in your life as as a guiding authority figure. Uh, But when it comes to our relationship with God, you and I are shoulder to shoulder, You know, we are side by side in that. And mommy and daddy need the gospel and we need God's grace every bit as badly as you do. And so both when you sin and when we sin, what we want to remind you of is the desperate need that we both have to look to Jesus for grace and for forgiveness. And so a part of that means going to the person against whom you sin and saying, listen, buddy, listen, you know, I'm sorry I said that. I responded way too strongly and daddy was wrong Um, Will you please forgive me? Having not had a father growing up deepened in me a desire for connection to a father and um, knowing the way that the scriptures repeat the nature of his relationship with us as of a father to his children. We long to hear that from our parents. I would even say, you know, having grown up without a father, specifically from a dad, for a dad to say, I love you and I'm proud of you and I approve of you and I'm pleased with you. I feel compelled at every biblically appropriate opportunity um, to remind God's people that that's the way that he views them and that's the way that he loves them. And the, the more deeply they believe that, the more equipped and empowered they'll be uh, to live out their callings as his
4: kids in the world. And you've been listening to Reverend Justin McGuire. His story, so many others like it across this great country, here on Our American Stories.
3: work.
0: Zumo Play.